0: to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannik, and you can find all our past shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can reach me with your thoughts and questions. I would love to hear from you. My email is hope at upc-online.org. So today on the podcast, we have an interview with Tracy Glover from Sweet Peeps Sanctuary. So I want to start an ongoing series that we're going to call the Micro Sanctuary Series, where we're going to feature a different micro sanctuary. And I want to have this uh, series maybe once a month or maybe once every other month. We'll see how it goes, but certainly through the summer and you know, I've just been enchanted and fascinated by the micro sanctuaries on social media and Facebook. And Tracy's going to talk a little more about what a micro sanctuary is, but it's basically rescue of animals And not necessarily farmed animals, it could be any animals really, but this movement is mostly around farmed animals and it's really rescue on a smaller scale. So doing it just in your backyard or on a smaller piece of land and being able to give more individualized attention, maybe animals that are more uh, in need uh, physically or emotionally. And like i said i've just kind of been enchanted by the online presence and stories of the chickens and their sweet shenanigans (laughs) all on facebook and and social media so i thought it would be fun to feature some of these wonderful sanctuaries and have them talk about the micro sanctuary experience and we're going to start today with sweet peeps sanctuary but first i i want to do a film review Briefly, hopefully, on the Netflix documentary, Seaspiracy. There's a lot of buzz around this film. You've probably seen the logo or heard about it. uh, And I, I hope that you watch it if you haven't already. I want to offer some thoughts on this movie, Seaspiracy. So I don't know that I really need to give a spoiler warning if you haven't seen it. For the most part with documentaries, I think you kind of you kind of know going in what what you're getting into or what it's about, but uh but I am going to get into some of the detail, probably not too much, but some possibly. And I also want to give a content warning. If you haven't seen the film yet, there are numerous places in the film where there is graphic violence against marine life. So just be aware of that going in. So Seaspiracy is of course kind of a follow-up to Cowspiracy, the film from 2014 that was very popular. But this one of course focuses on marine life and ultimately fish. But the film really kind of takes you on a journey to get there. I think it's a good length. It's an hour and a half. I generally like documentaries to be shorter rather than longer. But I was entertained the entire time. I think that there was even more suspense and intrigue than cowspiracy. And there was this there was this whole like action movie part where they went out with Sea Shepherd on their ships cracking down on illegal fishing. And if you remember the TV show Whale Wars. That featured Sea Shepherd. There's this segment in the film that's it's it's Fish Wars. It's got that same high adrenaline action footage. Uh, So it's it wasn't just your typical boring documentary with talking heads. There was certainly a story happening. There was action. So the hour and a half went by pretty quickly. It didn't seem to drag. And one more thing I'll say about the overall feeling of the film, and then I'll get into the story and some details, but it was just, oh, it was so validating to watch. As a 30-year vegan who has researched and talked about the fishing industry for decades, they were saying things inciting studies that I have been screaming into the void for decades. It was just so confirming and satisfying to have this film that is, it's 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 like in the top 10 on Netflix around the world. It's been in the top 10 in uh, the UK and Ireland and Hong Kong and Croatia and Singapore and Switzerland. I mean, all over the world. And Having it say all the things that vegans have been saying about the fishing industry for so many years, it it just it felt so good. It was really validating. So Kip Anderson was the focus of Cowspiracy, and he was a producer on this film. But this one is focused on another filmmaker, Ali Tabizi, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And he goes on a similar journey that we saw Kip go on in Cowspiracy, where he's concerned about the oceans. So he is picking up trash on the beach, and he's avoiding straws and doing all the things that the environmental groups tell you to do. But as he's digging deeper into the issue, he discovers the bigger, more impactful fishing industry is actually doing way more damage. But it takes kind of a while to get there. And I think that was actually good. They started the film with cetaceans, with whales and dolphins. And I think they did this because people really love whales and dolphins. I mean, everybody can kind of agree that they love whales and dolphins there's this connection there and it's it's that thing where it's okay to care about wildlife especially large sometimes cute or beautiful wildlife like panda bears and polar bears but we can kill chickens by the billions and i think there's a similar thing here with the whales but the connection to the fishing industry is so deeply entwined with what is happening to the whales and dolphins So I think it was a good inroad to the issue. So they go to Taiji, Japan, where there is the kind of infamous Taiji dolphin slaughter, where they kill up to 700 dolphins a year. And that was the subject of another film called The Cove, a very powerful film in the early 2000s. And it was was kind of disheartening to realize that that this is still going on, like 20 years later, after that film that won so many awards and was so popular, that film, The Cove, uh, just uh, it's just kind of sad to know that that is still happening and that that film didn't actually change anything. Uh, but uh, we learned there that for every one dolphin that's captured in this area and sold to marine parks, and they can be sold to up to $100,000 to marine parks, there's 12 dolphins that are just killed. They're just slaughtered. For every one dolphin captured, 12 dolphins killed. Why? The fishing industry doesn't want the competition For the fewer and fewer fish in the ocean. So they kill dolphins. So there's less of them eating the fish that they want to capture and kill and sell to humans. Then we learn that France kills 10 times more dolphins than Taiji, Japan up to 10,000 dolphins a year in the fishing industry, and how they're killed is in the bycatch, the non-target fish that are killed in the indiscriminate fishing nets and the longline fishing. So when they're fishing for the, the fish that people are buying, there are so many other beings Non target fish, as well as marine mammals and seabirds and other marine life, that is killed in the bycatch, sometimes called by kill, uh, because <laughs> nobody comes out alive from these nets. And I actually, I talk more about this in another podcast, The Reason for Vegan Series 9, The Fishing Industry Exposed, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if you want to dive a little deeper into that, into the fishing industry and how they work and the bycatch issue, uh, I, I recommend listening to that one as well. So then they get into sustainable labels like Dolphin Safe and that blue label that you maybe have seen called Certified Sustainable Seafood. Uh, it's the it's it's a little blue label that's issued by the Marine Stewards Council, very popular label on seafood. And this is where they get into some of that what they what what critics call the gotcha interviews with environmental groups where the representatives that they're interviewing are just kind of stumbling and squirming around these uncomfortable, but very reasonable questions that Ali is asking about these labels. And they did this in conspiracy, and they, they really got criticized for it. But you know, I, I, don't, I don't like calling this gotcha journalism. It's hard-hitting, in-depth reporting, and it's asking the hard questions, which is good journalism. I mean, these people should be able to explain and justify and stand behind <laughs> what they do. I, I, don't, I don't want to reveal too much here because these parts are really eye-opening if you haven't seen the movie yet. The other thing that I learned in this section and I found really disturbing was that they talked about how there are people who are paid to be fishing observers and they go out randomly on the vessels to observe and to make sure that whatever sustainable label is being put on the seafood that, that, the, that the fishing is being adhered to, that that sustainable fishing is being adhered to. But what they uncovered was that many of these observers are paid off to be kept quiet about, you know, what's going on. Others are killed. They're shot, thrown overboard to drown. I mean, it's terrible. So I was really shocked at this. And it seemed like groups that certify the seafood, the Earth Island Institute, the Marine Stewards Council, that they should be keeping track and protecting these people. I mean, they're paying these people to do this observation work. Shouldn't they, I don't know, be sure that they survived the voyage, make sure they're still alive? I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, that, that was just really absolutely shocking. So then they moved into plastics and plastic pollution in the ocean, and this is another place where I was just really cheering when I heard the information that I, again, have been yelling to the empty rafters. They talked about how everyone is focused on straws and trying to get people not to use straws, and but straws make up only 0.03% of the plastic pollution in the ocean. And in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, that floating island of plastic trash between California and Hawaii, 46% of that trash, almost half of the trash, is fishing gear. It's ropes and nets and floats, all from the fishing industry, all plastic. The ropes that they use for the nets, they're nylon, and nylon is plastic, so again, just so validating. Uh, I, it, it's so frustrating to not have plastic pollution organizations talking about this. Something else that they covered that I was kind of surprised to see them talk about. Because honestly, I didn't think anyone else knew about this other than me and the people that I've, that I've talked to, the people that have come to my fish talk, <laughs> and, and, and of course the, the scientists who discovered it. But they talked about how fish waste absorbs carbon from the atmosphere, making the entire ocean a carbon sink. But because we have depleted the ocean of fish, it's hastening climate change because it has reduced the amount of fish waste and therefore reducing reducing the ocean's ability to absorb carbon. So I was really, really happy for them to reveal this, to talk about this. It's so critical. So the part where I feel that I learned the most was the section on human slavery in the industry. I knew a bit about this. I knew it went on, but I didn't know the details, and they really dug in, and it was awful. They had firsthand accounts, actually, from Taiwanese men, and it was just heartbreaking what they had gone through. They were being coerced into going out, thinking that it's a job, but then they're beaten and starved and they're never paid. There's no money and th- there's no way for them to get off the boat for possibly months or years. It was awful. So they had this really interesting animation segment here where they kind of showed the enslaved person's experience and oh, it was brutal. I'm I'm really grateful that they included that. So not surprisingly, the film has already had a series of criticisms from ocean conservation groups and other environmental groups, groups that were targeted by the film, and they're debunking some of the studies saying that it was misinformation or misinterpreted. And I don't want to dismiss this because this is a a huge issue in the vegan movement. We should always use good data, good science, The truth is horrible enough. (laughs) We don't need to exaggerate it. And that can leave us open to criticism, to being dismissed. But I do think that their sources were good, at least most of them. I can't vouch for all of it. But I think this for two reasons. One, on many of the screenshots when they were using, when they were talking about a study uh, or some science... They put the source of the information in a footnote at the bottom of the screen. I don't think they've done that in the other films. I could be wrong, but but I didn't, don't remember noticing it, but I certainly noticed it with this one. And at the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, there was often a footnote from the study they were citing. The other reason why I think it's good science and why I kind of know it is, at least a lot of it, is it's the same studies that I've been citing for years. I was really shocked to see that a lot of it was the same stuff that I had been researching since I've been deeply researching this issue. They used a lot of the same stats, and I knew that those were from good peer-reviewed studies and reliable sources. But really even if half of what the film says is true, the oceans and the fishes are in trouble. And so are we. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up here soon, but I do have a couple of critiques. Now, certainly I feel that overall the film was just awesome and I do highly recommend it. But there's just a couple things I'd, I'd like to mention that maybe could have been improved. And one is that I feel that they relied too heavily on U.S. experts, even though they went all around the world for the footage. I mean, most of the film is filmed in other countries. They were in Japan and Taiwan and Scotland and lots of other places. So, for instance, in Taiji, I'm sure that there must be Japanese groups working on this dolphin slaughter issue. I mean, after it's been exposed for 15 years from from the Cove movie, maybe there's not, but I would bet that there are at least independent activists working on it there, if not full organizations, and I just wish we could have heard from them. And, and you know, I I totally get that this kind of film is very hard to make. There's probably a ton of logistics. They possibly would have had to to have interpreters and subtitles and, you know, it might have just been too hard, but... When I hear about animal issues in other countries, I just, I always think of the activists there that are on the ground doing the work day in and day out that don't get any recognition and will hear about the issue from a U.S. talking head, generally a white guy, you know. So I just wish that we could have heard from some of the activists who were in these places working on these issues because I know that they are there. My other criticism is that they they did, at the very end, have a brief section on fish pain and sentience and emotion on the actual individual fishes, but it was really brief and not very in-depth. I would have really liked to have seen a longer, stronger section on fish's lives and why we shouldn't kill fish as individuals, not just as the integral part of the ocean, you know, just not just the environmental issue. So that was kind of disappointing. I was they they had they kind of made light of it. They had this uh, interview where the person was talking about uh, how fish communicate through um, fish flatulence, and they laughed about it. And I don't know, it just, it it, it wasn't satisfying enough to me. I just feel like they should have and could have gone way more in depth in this section about individual fishes and their emotional needs and their uh, their individual desires and yeah I just it, it I felt like it really fell short but overall a fantastic film I highly recommend it I hope you enjoyed my review of Seaspiracy. And if you have any thoughts on the film, something that I missed, something that you want to talk about, please email me. You can email me at hope at upc-online.org. Okay, let's get into our interview for today. Okay, so on the podcast today, we have Tracy Glover. Between college and law school, Tracy worked as a rescue and cruelty officer with the Humane Society of Ann Arbor in Michigan. And during law school, Tracy focused on international refugee law. She practiced law for eight years before traveling to India to study yoga and meditation. Then in 2010, Tracy moved to Mobile, Alabama, where she created the vegan meal delivery business, The Pure Vegan, which she ran for eight years. And then in 2014, she co-founded the intersectional animal rights group Awakening Respect and Compassion for All Sentient Beings, and their acronym is ARC, A-R-C, and she is still the executive director of ARC. And Tracy's the author of the book Lotus of the Heart Living Yoga for Personal Wellness and Global Survival. And then in January 2019, Tracy adopted eight chickens that were rescued from the meat industry, which led to the creation of the Sweet Peeps Micro Sanctuary, uh, that's located in Lillian, Alabama, and is currently home to 16 intelligent and unique chickens, all of whom have been rescued from animal agriculture. So we are really excited to have her here today to talk to us about all that she's doing. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Hope. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Of course. I'm glad you could take the time. And I just, I would love to start with a little about you. I mean, just tell us what your origin story is, your superhero origin story, <laughs> and uh, why did you go vegan? When did you go vegan? What got you into activism? So tell us about the history and your uh, your backstory. Okay. Uh, it's always
1: funny to um, try to synthesize, you know, a life into a discreet little story. Um, <laughs> but I guess, you know, thinking about sort of where the person I am today came from, I have to just start with like, as a kid, I grew up in a house full of animals. My parents were divorced when I was little. They're both animal lovers, but um, my dad was really the like crazy cat man. I I don't know. We, we just had a menagerie always. You know, I was just always surrounded by non-human animals. You know, growing up, I had, we had cats and dogs, bunnies and fish and snakes and was just always surrounded by non-human animals and always really loved them. Mm. Uh, when I was about 16, somebody gave me a PETA flyer or booklet or something. And I think that was the first time I really thought about animal agriculture and possibly going vegan or vegetarian. And, uh, my dad and 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 around what,
0: around when was that? So I
1: was about 16, which would have made it, oh my gosh, math on the spot. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just like the 90s, probably. Yeah, like like
1: late 80s, early 90s. And really as like a follow up, I guess, to that, I, I soon after that, I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. So my dad and I both went vegetarian at that time. Sadly, I did not stay vegetarian. And, you know, it's that thing, I think the only thing. Vegans regret is that we didn't do it sooner. I definitely am, you know, sorry I, that I didn't stay vegan at that point. But I also think in, you know, in some ways it helps me understand where people are at when I meet non-vegans now and all of the obstacles and hurdles that people face. I think that when I first learned about the incredible cruelty of the industry, I was still like very naive in my belief that the purpose of government was to. Like protect the innocent, whether they be humans or non-humans, I just couldn't believe that the things that happen in animal agriculture were legal. And Mm -hmm. so in my naive young mind, I think after a couple of years, I just thought like, well, if I know about this cruelty, then the government must know about it and they must have fixed it by now because, well, how couldn't they? And, uh, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a different time. It was really like pre-internet it wasn't so easy to find out what was happening right. uh, and it was a lot easier to bury our heads. So I bounced back and forth between vegetarianism and non-ve- non-vegetarianism for years, but you know, I was always really an animal lover. Um, and so in between college and law school, I worked as an animal cruelty and rescue officer for this Humane Society uh, in Ann Arbor. It was such meaningful work that that we were doing but it was so minimal and there were so many hypocrisies that I saw like for example I would be out doing rescues in the rescue van and my boss the executive director of the humane society would call would like page me on the emergency pager and ask me to pick her up uh, like a cheeseburger from McDonald's <gasps> and I and I would be like I'm I'm out trying to get a you know like an injured animal and she'd be like yeah well he'll still be there when you're done yeah, it was really wow. oh yeah. It was, no. it was, I mean, you know, it was really an interesting look at shelters. You know, it was like just a lot of different kinds
0: of people who uh and are yeah. able to to somehow separate yes, the you know, that there are just certain species that are worth our protection and, right. <laughs> and respect and others right. that are not, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, and you
0: just saw that
1: there so glaringly. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that's, you know, that's our society. And then everything that I had been reading for those 15 years where I had been bouncing back and forth, you know, just all hit me kind of at once, like, I was finally ready to accept the truth of it all. Because I do think for, for a long time, what stopped me from going vegan was I could I really could not believe that we kill millions of baby chicks every year in the egg industry and that baby calves are routinely stolen from their mothers in the dairy industry. You know, even the calves coming from farms that are
0: quote unquote
1: humane. I just couldn't believe that it was possible that this was all happening. It
0: does seem so unreal and unimaginable. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I still feel that, you know, I still look at the world on a regular basis and just go like, how, how is it possible that that's the norm? It doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. so you took this wonderful journey and you have finally reached uh, a vegan conclusion. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, and I know that you've done a great deal of activism up and to the sanctuary, but I'm Curious and want to ask you about mm-hmm. Sweet Peeps Micro Sanctuary. This is a micro sanctuary that you've founded fairly recently. It's just been a couple mm-hmm. of years, right?
1: Right, that's right. Yeah. Um, so,
0: tell us about the sanctuary. How many chickens do you have? Uh, wh- where do they live on the property? And and maybe tell us a little about the micro sanctuary movement as well.
1: Um, yeah, I would love to. It's my favorite thing in the whole world is to talk about these chickens. <laughs> Good. Um, I had known, I think for years that at some point I wanted to, uh, rescue chickens in part because, you know, I knew that they were the most, uh, abused land animal on earth. You know, so much of why I went vegan to begin with was because of the suffering of chickens. But in all honesty, until I took some in, you know, to live with me. I didn't know chickens. Like every time I had visited a sanctuary, I was more interested in visiting with like the large mammals than the chickens. And I just felt like I would be a better advocate, a better, you know, vegan advocate if I knew chickens. And so I always knew that I, in the back of my mind, I, I wanted to take some in at some point. And I'm trying to think now, I guess it was January of 2019, I yeah, that's that what it says in your bio.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you.
1: Yes. <laughs> thank you. So yeah, okay. so January two thousand and nineteen, there was a uh, big chicken farm in Colorado that went bankrupt, and they were housing something like forty thousand birds. And when they went bankrupt, they turned off the heat and they stopped feeding them. They put out, I guess, a call to, local farmers or, or something that if other farmers wanted to come and take any of the birds they could and there was a local sanctuary that found out and the farm owner let them go in and rescue as many birds as they could they then started contacting you know other animal like other sanctuaries and the word the word just sort of spread really on social media i think and i saw a facebook posts at that point there were rescuers in the sheds and they were they were going to rescue as many as they had homes for and no more so there were like 40,000 birds there and they you know it was like if people would step up they would pull out more birds and if people didn't step up they couldn't because they didn't have homes for them i just had like an old shed like very spontaneously i just decided i would take i think i i think originally i said two, i would take 2 and then a bunch of a bunch of things happened and somehow i i ended up with 8 I didn't I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Honestly, I often will say I'm glad I had no idea how how much time and energy I was going to need to take care of them or else. I don't know that I would have done it, but it was like the best thing I think I ever did. But, you know, you read online about caring for chickens and everything from the backyard chicken industry will indicate that chickens are easy and cheap. Well, that's if you don't, you know, if you don't value their lives and you don't provide them veterinary care or worry about keeping them safe or giving them an enriched environment, it probably is cheap um, and easy to care for them. Their needs are not unlike dogs and cats in terms of veterinary care and enrichment. And really, unless we keep them in the house, you need to provide predator-proofed housing, which is also time-consuming and costly. But anyway, I, so I took in these eight birds. I knew nothing about chickens. I joined the vegans with chickens, Facebook group,
0: uh, uh, and
1: Uh learned, you know, I mean, I, I still learn more from people in that group than from anywhere, including from my, my vets, even the avian specialists that I go to now, because the avian specialists, they're used to, treating more like parrots and parakeets the regular sort of like dog and cat vets if they see birds at all it might be backyard chickens and most people again with backyard chickens you know they don't provide the same level of veterinary care to them as they would their dogs and cats also so I think I'm sorry I didn't update my bio but I I actually there's I have 25 chickens at this point okay yeah and um I mean, I think the idea of the micro sanctuary movement is to show that these species that are not generally considered companion animals or considered to be like worthy of our moral consideration to care for them and show society how wrong our perceptions are about them. And so I think, you know, like part of the beauty of the micro sanctuary is that you don't have to have a huge sanctuary with a lot of animals to, to, to have a large impact. You can, you know, there are lots of like really great examples of people who are like, especially people who are very savvy, I think, with social media, and they might care for one or two animals of one of those really exploited species. But, you know, through their social media posts, they're able to reach thousands and thousands of people and tell, the, tell their stories.
0: So humans categorize domestic animals primarily in two categories, friends and food. How do our speciesist views come into play when we're considering chickens? And of course, Mm. speciesism is when we consider one species more dominant or more important than another. What can we do to get people to see chickens more as companion animals and Mm -hmm. not commodities?
1: Mm, Yeah. Chickens are the most abused land animal on earth, right? Because- Of the way that we perceive them. And so I think we have all of these misperceptions about them that allow us to treat them so egregiously. So, I mean, I think a lot of changing the way they're treated is about changing the way we perceive them. And, you know, I think for the most part, People, they just don't, they don't know chickens at all. And then there are all of these harmful misperceptions out there about them, you know, like the idea that chickens are unbelievably stupid. That's a super prevalent misconception. And one thing, a little bit of a side note, but just, you know, obviously, right, you don't have to be intelligent to suffer. And so I I feel like I get into trouble sometimes if I make too much out of, you know, how smart they are. Like, of course, that's not the barometer, right? The whole Jeremy Bentham question is not, do they think or do they talk, but can they suffer? But the fact is, is that chickens are smarter than we think, way smarter than we think. And they also, I just think too, it's like, you know, we think about chickens, for one, we think about them as being stupid, and they're not. So correcting that by, I think, educating people about they're like different forms of intelligence. And it's that thing of we as humans, we compare all other species intelligence to ours. And if it's like a different form of intelligence, then we we discount it entirely. So you know, recognizing that maybe they have like different forms of intelligence, we tell our you know we we just we absolutely remove all personality from them i think we think that they're that they're not intelligent and we group them as these beings without personalities i mean of the 25 chickens that are here each one has such a distinct personality like i can tell you i can tell you about every single individual here and they are all such different people just like our dogs and our cats so i think you know it's like a combination of Educating people about their actual intelligence and their personalities and besides, you know, and I guess, com- you know, coming back to just just their their ability to suffer. And so sort of like, re- you know, regardless of their intelligence and their personalities, like they're capable of suffering. But I think I think by um, characterizing them as being not intelligent and not having personality, somehow we think that means they can't suffer. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I just think it's correcting all of these misperceptions, and and this again, I think is you know part of the brilliance of the microsanctuary movement is that there is this opportunity to highlight individuals, you know, sh- and show people a combination of you know who they really are, and then also show them, show people how they how they can live, you know, the contrast. A large part of why I went vegan was definitely seeing the cruelty and the deprivation and the abuse and, you know, all the horrible things that we do to them in animal agriculture. But I think that the flip side of seeing what their lives can be like seeing the alternative, seeing the con the dramatic contrast. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you see an animal living a beautiful, happy life, like, I'm, I'm actually looking outside right now and I can see the group of, I mean, I can actually kind of see them all from where I'm sitting, but I can see the group of the Georgia tornado survivors and they're all out in the sun right now, dust bathing and just like milling around with their friends. It's very basic. It's very simple.
0: And it's also, it's just, a, it's beautiful. I would love to hear a story of one of your chickens or roosters, one that either maybe touched your heart or just had an interesting story or um one that you just want to talk about.
1: Yeah, I it's there's so I mean for one I feel like you know they all have such interesting stories and but we've talked a little, you know, we've touched a little bit on sort of like where the main groups, they you know, they all come from these horrible situations, but I guess Maybe if I could just uh, tell you a little bit about a couple that I think I'm closest to Fanny. I don't really have like a particular story about Fanny, I guess, but, um, but yeah, if I could just tell you a little bit about Fanny, because Fanny is perfect and (laughs) one of the best people in the whole world, Fanny came from that original Colorado group. She's one of the original eight. And when I got them, so I also, I didn't say, but they were all, you know, we, we, Send them to slaughter in the meat industry, right when they're between like six and eight weeks old. And they were just about that age when they were rescued. Even when they got here at eight weeks old, they were pretty much the size of like a regular adult chicken. But they, but they were babies. They were like eight weeks old. They, they peeped. You know, they sounded like babies. And probably, you know, in part because they were such, they were so young and they were such babies. They would, uh, Fanny in particular was just always by my side. Like, so when I first got them, right, they're all Cornish crosses. So they're all white people often too. And they, you know, they come visit the sanctuary. They're like, how do you tell them apart? When I first got them, I couldn't. Now I can tell them all apart by their, you know, they have slightly different faces. They have different voices. They just have all these, you know, different little characteristics. I can tell them all apart. But when I first got them, I absolutely could not tell them apart. They all looked identical to me. And I did at some point put uh, leg bands, different colored leg bands on them so I could tell them apart. But even before I put the leg bands on, I always knew who Fanny was because Fanny was just always the one who was like right at my side, wanting to, you know, either like jumping it, flying up into my lap or following me around. Mm. And so she's now like two and a half years old and she's the same. Like every time I go out into the yard, they all actually will come over to greet me but she is always at the front of the line coming over to greet me just likes to be held, she buries her head, like into my armpit. And I think would stay there for hours. I think the longest I've ever probably sat with her was like maybe an hour and a half before I just had to get up and go do something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, maybe like w- one more, one more story. Um, just I'll just tell you really quickly about Simi. So Simi was part of the Georgia tornado rescue. And when I first took in this, actually there were seven, and uh, one of them, her injuries were too severe and she had to be euthanized. But I took the whole group to the vet when I first got them and the vet recommended that we euthanize Simi as well. So she had a, a broken leg, And just her overall condition was really bad because, so they, they had been in this destroyed shed for, I think a week before they were rescued. So they had been without food or water and injured when they were rescued. So when I got my group, right, they, they, none of them were walking. They all, most of them had deep lacerations. And like I said, Avi had a broken wing. Simi had this broken leg, but just her overall body condition was just bad. The vet recommended euthanizing her. But because I am connected to people who have uh, chickens with disabilities, like I knew it was possible that if nothing else, I could get her a wheelchair and I could give her a good life. And, you know, my vet has never dealt with anybody. Like, I don't think he's ever dealt with a vegan, (laughs) probably. (laughs) And he was really, you know, he took care of a lot of the backyard chickens in, in town but for the most part people are maybe treating them for worms and not a lot else. I had to really fight with him. I mean I probably spent two hours fighting with him and eventually we concluded that you know there was no harm in trying and then he put her in a splint and for about a month she um, I built a sling for her and she lived inside with a cast on her leg basically and uh, in in her sling, after a month when you, they, when you say a
0: sling, do you mean like a little a little harness with wheels or what what, what Yeah, that?
1: so it was like <laughs> um it was basically I think I bought a a ferret, put it I guess harness? it's called a, it's like a hammock, it's like a ferret oh, hammock. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I just attached attached. I I um bought PVC pipe and watched a YouTube video and constructed basically constructed like a wheelchair, although we never used the wheels. And for that first month, uh, like I, you know, after she came out of the cast, I thought the wheels apparatus would sort of support her and she could relearn to walk. It was like, I think what I built was too heavy for her. So the sling though was like, you know, it was just PVC piping basically with this ferret hammock. And the idea was to keep that leg straight you know, that was in the cast straight. And then even when the cast came off still to keep the leg straight as it healed. And I think once the cast came off, I just lowered it a little bit so that her feet would touch the ground. And then I just had to work with her, um, you know, kind of like physical therapy to get her to slowly start to use that leg again. Within maybe a month after having the cast off, she started to really walk on it. She runs on it and just has done so well. To fill in um, images of any of this, I'm always posting photos and videos on the Sweet Peeps Facebook page and Instagram page, too. So if anybody's listening and they're like,
0: I have to see this. (laughs)
1: That's great. (laughs) I love it.
0: Well, we'll put uh, links to those social media pages in the show notes. So Okay,
1: fabulous. Thank you. Yeah.
0: So I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your documentary. You created a documentary called Until All Are Free, and it's 30 minutes long, and it covers a lot. It covers really all aspects of veganism and, and, and even some that are uh, more obscure, like aquaculture, fish farming, Um, you go into the environment a lot. It's, it's really very comprehensive and beautifully done. Uh, I will give just a bit of a content warning. If anyone wants to watch it, there is some really kind of hard to watch footage, some pretty heartbreaking Mm -hmm. stuff. So just be aware Mm -hmm. of that going in. But I'd love to hear about why you made this film. Can you can you tell us about it? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think I, like many animal activists, am constantly trying to figure out, you know, just how to help and um, how to have as much impact as possible. I feel like I'm, I'm constantly trying sort of new methods, trying to figure that out, you know, trying to figure out like what my role in the movement is. You know, there's so many amazing documentaries out there that have had such an impact on me. I've always been drawn to film and, you know, I just think it's such an effective medium. So I just was at a point in my life where I was like, you know, I want to do, I want to do more and I don't know what that should be. I remember before making the film, reaching out to some activists who I admire, including Bruce Friedrich, who's in the film, you know, asking him like w- what he thought the greatest need in the movement was. And I can't remember exactly what his answer was, but it, the message that I got was figure out what you're, what you're good at and what you like to do. The movement needs everything. We need, yeah. we need people in, from all walks of life doing all kinds of things. Yeah, um,
0: that was good advice. and, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and and you say you say something in the film. I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. You say wh- how before you knew chickens that yeah. you were thinking and hoping that chickens were too stupid to feel or to have mm-hmm. emotion, mm-hmm. and and you kind of touched on this earlier talking about animal intelligence, and and I mm-hmm. guess my question kind of is does it even matter? Does a lack of intelligence matter at all whether we exploit an animal? But in the film, of course, you say that once you knew chickens, and I'll I'll read this quote, because I loved this quote, you said, as a species, chickens are incredibly social, gentle, curious, and smart. I had no idea what amazing little people they were. And it's just such a sweet quote. <laughs> I love that. So yeah. So tell us what you learned about chickens from living with them. Yeah.
1: To answer your first question, I think it doesn't matter, right? I mean, I think it's there's two parts to that, right? I did think, and I think many people do think that they are too stupid to suffer. And I think that there's a lot to unpack in that. Like, for one, I think, no, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, you know, you don't have to be a highly intelligent being of any species to feel pain and to suffer. But the truth is they are so much more intelligent than we give them credit for. And, you know, not just intelligent, but yes, gentle and sweet and social. So I mean, I just think that yeah, before I got to know them as individuals, they were, they were just very neutral somehow in my mind. You know, I I had never known one well enough to have any idea what their personalities would be like. And again, you know, they're they're very much individuals. And I just, you know, it's like getting to know Fanny as an individual or Becky. Okay. So quick little Becky story. Becky is one of the Colorado rescues. She got to me with a compound fracture and had her wing amputated. She then slept inside for about a year, oh, yeah, she's featured actually in the documentary too. She loves being around me when I go out to clean the coops or she's also she she wants to be by my side, but she does not want to be held. Fanny really likes to be held and likes to have her head scratched. Becky, I don't know if it's from the trauma of what happened, uh, whatever caused that compound fracture, or if there's still some sensitivity or if it's just her, you know, it's clear to me, like when I try to pick her up, she'll sort of like flex her one wing. So she's just like a little bit more shy. She's yeah. just, I think about Becky is like, she's one of the shyer girls, whereas Nunu, um, Nunu is, Kind of bossy, but you know they. Oh, they all have these you know very unique voices. I can identify who's talking. You know, on the from the other side of the the yard, in like you know un- unique voices that go with unique personalities. So I've learned so much. I mean, I think you. I'm sorry, I think your original question was just like, what have you learned about chickens since you've had them? I mean, I I just it's like everything. And again, even as an activist, like I went vegan in part because of the suffering of chickens, but I had no idea. And so you know now. To think about like that the sheds and slaughterhouses are filled with individual people, just like my Fanny or my Simi or my Eleanor. And I'm sorry to use that possessive, but you know, it's like our loved ones, they are Mm -hmm. ours on some level. Like, you know, I'm very, I'm very attached.
0: I'm theirs as much as they're mine, you know? So you have a series of webinars coming up with your organization that focus on chickens. So I'd love to hear about these upcoming webinars.
1: My group arc is about to launch a webinar series on the chicken industry, looking at sort of the the many different ways that the chicken industry is harming the planet from obviously the animals to the environment, to workers We have uh, Erica Meyer scheduled to do our first webinar on May 13th, which will be an overview of the chicken industry. We don't have any other dates set in stone yet, but basically the plan is to do one webinar a month through the fall. And we'll also be looking at the legal status of chickens. And uh, we have Justin Van Cleek, who's going to speak about the backyard chicken industry. So hoping to just really do a really comprehensive look at kind of all the, all the main evils of the chicken industry. And you can find all of the dates and all the information and everything up on our
0: website. Great. And I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can register. So Tracy, what gives you hope for the future? There are so
1: many things. One thing, honestly, uh, it is so far from like the work that I do, but all of the, the, the food technology advances give me a lot of hope like i look mm-hmm. at meats but also like lab grown clean meat looking at the transformation of the dairy industry the changes that are happening i think in food technology are really i think taking society you know in a like a big leap forward maybe yeah. even sort of beyond where we are ethically you know like i think that there are so many there's so many moral and ethical reasons for us to eliminate animal agriculture think you know I see the food food technology industry really taking us there in a way that it gives does give me a lot of hope and I guess I think it's you know it's maybe it's like connecting the dots like um you know people have compassion even though I think it's often just very very buried and people do want to save the planet how could humans not want to save the our one and only home planet, but I think our habits are so ingrained and people maybe struggle with the the practical aspects of giving up animal products. And so if you can give people the same food that they're eating, basically that they're used to, they don't have to change their habits, but you can completely eliminate animal suffering and environmental destruction. Seems that people will, will buy those products. So that's hopeful. That gives, that gives me hope yeah i I think that there are there are just a lot of changes happening right now in the world that are hopeful. Just seeing so many more vegan options out there, seeing so many more people mentioning veganism, like it seems that that vegan veganism has become a real possibility for a large segment of the population in a way that it never has before. Yeah. for a lot of reasons.
0: Well, I've really enjoyed spending this time with you and learning about Sweet Peeps Micro Sanctuary. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great talking to you and thank you for all that you do. Yes, you too, Tracy. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. If you know and love a micro sanctuary that we should feature in our Micro Sanctuary series, please let me know. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, I hope you will share it with others. Hit subscribe and put us in your listening library. How about a five-star rating while you're at it? That helps us so much to reach more listeners. We really appreciate it. I hope that you are finding ways to enjoy life for yourself and preserve life for others. Please live vegan.